Okay, I think we'll get started here with the afternoon session on uh, Bible study methods. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul gave the admonition to Timothy saying, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. So it's important for us to study and pay attention to reading and to the Word of God. And this afternoon I want to give you some tools, uh, just give you a bit of an overview on some basic study methods and recommendations for how to study the scriptures. Now, it's going to be fairly basic. You might consider it a beginner's guide, but the reality is it still is the basic framework of my own study. In other words, it's not going to expire as you mature. It's something you'll take with you uh, in your years of study. But most of the things I'll talk about, and I'll be sharing some about different Bible helps and so on that you can use, access. Uh, Most of what I will share, or all of it actually does... uh, has paper copies, you can get books, uh, a lot of it is, is aggregated in Bible software on your computer and, and that's a bit more convenient for some of the study, makes it go a bit faster, but it does have a few drawbacks. I still in, uh, prefer to read portions of scripture out of my uh, paper copy. And it's just a blessing in doing that, although I do use the computer extensively in, in study and preparation and so on. I'd like to make this first point here is that the Word of God is quick. That word quick means alive. The Word of God is alive. It is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So this is not just for academic uh, enrichment. It is for your life. You want to study the Scriptures They are able to discern what is going on in your heart and in your mind, discerning between the thoughts and the intents of your heart. So it's not uh, just book learning, if you will, but it's rather an exercise in devotion and, and meditation of the Word of God. Second... Important thing to remember, let's look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 2. Let's turn to that. Verse 
1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 14. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So as you study the scriptures, just understand that it is required that the Holy Spirit be your companion to illuminate your mind to the truth of God's word. The real spiritual life is, you might say, administered by the Holy Spirit because it is required for you to have spiritual understanding and discernment that the Holy Spirit be with you and guide you. So that's going to be an, what I would call an assumed position as we go into this. You will need the Holy Spirit. Uh, your wisdom will not be sufficient for you to gain a full understanding of God's Word. Well, that's just the way it is. You must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We come to this topic by faith. I'd like to present three basic steps of study. And what I'm, what I'm looking at here is it could be as, as little as one verse or even a phrase. It could be several verses. It could be a, a longer portion of Scripture, but something that applies to a particular subject, topic, etc. And so I want to look at this here today, these three steps. First of all, you can take a passage to study a particular word in that passage. That word may be the chief subject uh, or it may be individual words that relate to the subject but you, you study out the specific meaning of the word. The second thing then would be to compare how this word is used in other passages. And so we have Bible tools readily available to help us do that quickly and easily. You don't have to be able to read Greek in order to, to do this and use these tools. And then the third step would be to find other passages where the same subject is found. And so that requires a few more tools perhaps for you to do it quickly. Uh, you can do it by your own reading and and so on, and coming across passages, you can cross-reference back to other portions you've read. Uh, but it would be, in order to get a full, rounded understanding of a passage, you want to take these steps, studying the individual words, then comparing how those words are used in other passages, and then also consider the whole subject, which may be stated in different words, and in other places, and the 
the framework of all this is that it's comparing Scripture with Scripture. And that helps you to understand what is being taught. What I'd like to do this afternoon is actually go through a test exercise. We're going to take a passage of Scripture, and what I chose is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you want to turn there, we are going to spend a good bit of time. The last part of the chapter there. First Thessalonians chapter 4, and particularly verse 14 and onward. Well, actually verse 13 kind of begins the uh, subject there. 13 through 18, and we're going to be considering the rapture. Before we actually go into this passage, we're going to look at some of the Bible study helps that are available to you. The first one would be a concordance, and a concordance, I'm assuming most of you are quite familiar with them. They enable you to find any passage of scripture, if you have Strong's exhaustive concordance, it is the one I use almost exclusively, because it has everything in it, meaning all the words. So if you can think of even one word in the passage, you can find the text where it's uh, located. Secondly, then, is a dictionary. And a dictionary defines the words for you. And Strong uh, took the dictionary or his concordance and linked it with the dictionary. So they are used in conjunction with each other, Strong's Hebrew and Greek dictionary. And what, um, what Mr. Strong did is he gave a number to every Greek and Hebrew word that's found in the, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as, as I pondered this, I realized we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to that scholarship and work because it makes things so much simpler for us and we can, we can access it so quickly. And perhaps we have used it so much that we uh, fail to appreciate the vast scholarship that went into it. Actually, that numbering system cross-references with several other works and makes it really convenient to compare specific words. But back to a dictionary, Vine's Expository Dictionary, I've found very helpful. It gives a more detailed definition of most of the words. And then thirdly, we have Webster's 1828 English Dictionary. And you may wonder why that can be so valuable, and here's the reason. I'll give you an, ex, uh, an example a bit later. But language changes over time. All languages that are used will change slightly over time. The same is uh, uh, very true for the English language. Uh, 
The King James Version that was translated in 1611, some of the words used have shifted in their meaning. Some of them have shifted dramatically. And unless you understand what the original definition was, you might be a little confused about how it's written. Well, Webster, having given his dictionary in 1828, is closer to some of the original definitions than a current dictionary. Now, a current dictionary also has value, even in Bible study. But the 1828 has a bit more value because it's a bit closer. Um, but then going on from a dictionary, there's the lexicons, and those are actually dictionaries also, but they usually get a little special attention because a lexicon takes specifically the Bible words and gives expanded definitions, and some of them are uh, quite extensive, and generally if you pick up something that's actually labeled a lexicon, it's for some fairly in-depth study of the words. Going on from that, you have Bible encyclopedias, and they will take a word, perhaps, or a topic and give you some biblical uh, definition to it in a more expanded way, much like an ordinary encyclopedia would. Uh, you can get some very good ones. I didn't name any of them here, but Generally, you can get an encyclopedia in one volume. There are some works that are multi-volume, uh, but even one that's just a large one single volume can be very helpful. And then there's commentaries. The three that I use the most I have listed here, Matthew Henry's whole Bible commentary, and Adam Clark's commentary, and then Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary, which is often abbreviated... JFB. These vary uh, a bit in their makeup, and I think for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into detail, but uh, they, they overlap, of course, but I, have, I find value uh, for different reasons in each of these, and I do use a few others. But let me make a uh, a few statements about commentaries. Commentaries are commentaries written by men. They are not the inspired word of God. And therefore, we need to be a bit careful. I would probably not agree in totality with any of these that I listed. There are times when I choose to disagree with them. But at the same time, I've found them very valuable. And there's two sides of this. One, we shouldn't be just dependent on men's opinions, okay? But some have gone so far as to say, well, if those are men's opinions, I don't need them. All I need is my Bible, and I will just study the Word of God directly. And I say, well, amen, but no scripture is of any private interpretation. And don't be so high-minded to think that you're going to figure everything out on your own. Um, you will be benefited by considering what other men have studied and learned. So there's two sides of that, and I do find them helpful. Just remember to use them with um, always 
realizing that this is the final authority and it's not uh, just men's opinion. Okay, we're going to go now into our text and start with a word definition. So the first, um, well, let me just read this uh, portion here. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, as an example of word study, and I'll have a few more later, but we'll start with this one. In verse 15, you have the word prevent. Now, as we use that word today, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We we fail to grasp what he's really saying. So what does that word mean? So we go to Strong's Greek Dictionary and we find, we can find what the actual Greek word is here translated prevent. And if you look down there about the middle it says, uh, it gives a definition, apparently a primary verb to be beforehand, that is, anticipate or precede, by extension, to have arrived at. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with a Greek or a Strong's dictionary, but I'll just quickly explain a few things. You will notice that he gives a number to this word. It's 5348. And as I mentioned, there are some other dictionaries that cross-reference with this same numbering system. Now, you can take a paper copy and actually search out all of the places in the New Testament where this Greek word would be used, number 5348. There actually aren't very many, but... He then gives the definition after actually, and also giving a, a way to pronounce it. So beginning with the word apparently, a primary verb, that's describing the part of speech. And he gives a definition to be beforehand, that is anticipate or proceed, by extension to have arrived at. And then you see a colon. What is prior to the colon is the definition of the word. And then after the colon, he gives you all the ways it's translated in your New Testament, in the King James. For example, already is in parentheses, 
but it's connected with the word attain. So you will find a place where this word is translated already attain. Or it may be translated come, or it may be translated prevent. But he does give a very brief definition there to be beforehand. Now let's see what Webster's 1828 dictionary says. You have the word prevent. He gives five definitions. I'll let you read them. But the first one, to go before, to precede. I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried, Psalm 119. And it's interesting that he many times uses a passage of scripture to define. But note, after five definitions, he makes this note, and I have it in italics there toward the bottom. He says, in all the preceding senses, the word is obsolete. So even by 1828, those definitions were obsolete, but they were still in effect when it was so translated in the word. Then he goes on, number six, to hinder, to obstruct, to intercept the approach or access of. This is now the only sense. So there's an example of a word that has shifted dramatically in definition over time. So this word prevent here in our King James Version actually is intending to tell us that those who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall not precede or go before them which are asleep. And then he gives some more definition to that. But there's an example of shifting definition of words. Okay, let's go on. Here I have the rapture text, which is... Um, I put two verses together, 16 and 17, and you will see at the heading there I put a one. It's because I have this passage repeated, but we draw a little something different out of it as we go down through. So I numbered them so I'm not confused. In this portion, we want to consider... what the rapture text uh, here or the why, why do we call it the rapture well he uses the term shall be caught up and we have used the word rapture now the word rapture itself is not found in that manner in the, in the scriptures so is it biblical to talk about a rapture and so we'll do a little search here um, the word, or the words, actually there was an original Greek word that was here translated, shall be caught up. And these are the questions now we want to consider as we go through this exercise. First one, when will the rapture be? Okay, and I'm not talking about in relation to now. I'm talking about in relation to the end time events that surround it. And this topic is, uh, has been much debated. And one of my reasons for choosing this topic is so that 
you get a hold of some tools that help you to study a portion of scripture. This topic may be a bit intimidating. And you may think, well, we'll leave that to the experts to, you know, to figure out what's going on. But we're going to look at just a few questions here. Second question, is the rapture a secret event? Will those people who are not caught up be mystified or perplexed as to what happened or where the people went who were caught up? And if you've done much study in this, you recognize that is a common uh, perception that when, when people talk about the rapture, they have the idea that um, at some point in the future, all at once, uh, millions of people will just disappear. All the believers are going to just be out of here. And there's going to be cars without drivers and planes without pilots and all kinds of catastrophes could happen and everyone is looking around and wondering what happened to them. Where did they go? Is that really how it's going to be? Now, I'm not trying to say everybody who believes in the rapture believes that version of it. I'm just saying it's out there and it's quite popular. I would say it's widely believed. Uh, but is that what the scripture teaches? So we're going to look at some of these passages. We'll start with word definition. That phrase, shall be caught up, was translated from the Greek word, which strong numbered 726, harpazo, and here's the definition, two C's in various applications, and then you see the colon there. So what follows the colon is the words that are used. Catch, and in parentheses he has two words, so those are sometimes joined with the word catch as catch away or catch up. Another one is pluck, another one pull, and another one take, and take by force. And this is a verb. So there's action here. This is a verb. Shall be caught up. Now let's consider some other places where this word is used. Acts 8.39, And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Acts 23.10, And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them, and to bring him into the castle. Second Corinthians 12.2 I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. Three times, and there are more, I just picked out these three, uh, partly because they seem very clear in a similar definition to what we're studying. Now, if you want to do a thorough study, be sure to check out all the cases where this word is used in the New Testament. I'm just picking out a few 
because we don't have time to look at them all. In some cases, the other appearances of the word does maybe not apply to your particular study, but it's good to know where those are. So you have the picture here of action. Philip was caught away. He was trans, uh, transported to a different place by the Spirit. The soldiers went down and took Paul by force. There's a lot of energy and action there. It wasn't going to go otherwise when the soldiers showed up. And Paul being caught up to the third heaven. There is no, there is no highway to the third heaven. Uh, you don't go there unless you're caught up. So those uses are very similar to the one we have in our text. And it's the word we often refer to as the rapture. So the conclusion here is that there is action, there is direction, and the concept of being caught up is very clear and direct. There is, there is power and there's action. So that is the rapture. And it's not wrong to use that word because even though it's not in the Bible, because that is clearly what it is telling us. Now let's go to another portion. And I've underlined the part I want to look at there. The trump of God. So we're studying this passage. We looked at what it means to be caught up. And now we're going to consider this part, the trump of God. What is the trump of God? Well, in our method of study, we can look at the definition of the word. I believe I have that next. Yes, the trump of God. Strong's Dictionary, number 4536, it means through the idea of quavering or reverberation, a trumpet. And it's simply um, translated trump or trumpet. Looking at several other uses of the word. Matthew 24, 31, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now this is very interesting in that we started with a word definition, that of trumpet, and we find here in these two passages, and there are a few more, but these two in particular also speak about the same subject that we're talking about. And we're going to see that a bit later, but the words actually took us to the same subject. Now we're going to continue on in our study and consider other uses of the word trumpet or times when there was a trumpet. 
So I'd like for you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Are any of you having trouble falling asleep? Perhaps we could all just stand while we read this portion. If you would do that, please. I'll try to do my part to keep you awake. Now, I'll just mention again, I think I may have forgotten to really be, make this very clear, but we are only taking short sections of each of these to just be able to move through it rapidly. We're not looking at all the passages that relate to this, even word definitions or the, uh, the subject matter. I'm kind of picking and choosing. If you were to do a thorough study, you would want to make sure that you study all not just, not just a few of them, but study all the cases, all the places where these things are mentioned. But trump of God. Let's read here Exodus 19, verses 9 through 20. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people, and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death." There shall not a hand touch it, but it shall surely be stoned, or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live, when the trumpet soundeth long, and they come up to the mount. Excuse me the moment, I'm running out of liquid. And Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. And it shall come to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. Okay, you can sit down. This portion 
And the account here of God coming down on Mount Sinai is one of the most momentous events in world history since the creation of the world. One of them. And we have the sound of a trumpet. It is the trump of God. God was directing this trumpet. And it's interesting that we have some very clear details about this trumpet. Here's some points. It sounded long. It was exceeding loud so that all the people trembled. And it waxed louder and louder. Now, it almost takes my breath away just to read the account and think how this might have been. It was long, it was exceeding loud, and it went up from there. It was so tremendous that the people trembled. They were fearful, they were shaking because the intensity of the noise and the sounding of the trumpet. But God was making a proclamation. Let's move on. Back to our rapture text. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. We have the phrase there, the dead in Christ shall rise. So now we're considering more of the subject matter here. This is talking about a time of the resurrection. The dead in Christ shall rise. And there are a number of places where this is spoken of in the scriptures. I believe that's what I have next here. John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, I, the underlining and bold is my own uh, notation because I want to emphasize these. We're here comparing the account of the resurrection. And this is clearly speaking of that. They shall come forth out of the graves. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. Now I will note that in our text passage there in Thessalonians, it speaks about those who have died in the Lord. That passage does not make reference to the wicked dead. Now that whole topic of, of a separation between a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the wicked here this passage in John seems to make a distinction. <clears throat> and that's, that's a topic for a whole other study. Um, but I'll just make note of that here. 
and mention that the Thessalonians passage only specifically talks about those who have died in the Lord. Other thing of note here, shall hear his voice. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Okay, so here you have a connecting passage. The two things there, speaking about the resurrection, and it speaks about his voice being heard. Another passage, same subject, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 53. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Are you making the connections? There are numerous ones between these two passages, each of them giving us a little different aspect of it. But here in Corinthians, and for the sake of a thorough study, it would be excellent to read all of 1 Corinthians 15 because there's a number of other verses that also apply. But let's note here, we shall not all sleep. Thessalonians talks about those who are asleep in the Lord. We shall all be changed, both who are dead and who are alive. All shall be changed, just like the Thessalonians passage. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we didn't read that specifically in Thessalonians, but it's so stated here, that it happens in a moment. Okay, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We read about the dead rising in Thessalonians. We read about it here. We shall be changed. And the we is those who are still alive. So Thessalonians said that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. We are going to be raptured up. And the connecting here is that we shall be changed. So at the rapture. When we are caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, we shall be changed. We put on the incorruptible body at that moment. Now, another passage on this same subject, Matthew 24, 29 and 31. And I have highlighted some and underlined some, and those were my points of emphasis. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Just note the highlighted and underlined. 
immediately after the tribulation, and then, and then, and they shall see, coming in the clouds, power, great glory, his angels, the great sound of a trumpet, shall gather together his elect. We read about that in Thessalonians. Those that were dead and asleep in the grave were raised up. Those saints that were alive and remaining at that moment are caught up together with them. And it is the great gathering of the saints from one end of heaven to the other. Now, I know we're going through this very fast, and we are not looking at nearly every passage, but I believe in my heart that I have not omitted any passage that would contradict what we're finding here. In fact, they all support it. But if you wanted to do a thorough study, be sure to study them all. The conclusion of when... Looking at the passages we looked at, and remember our question back at the beginning, when will the rapture be in relation to other end-time events? Well, these are our conclusions from what we looked at. Immediately after the tribulation, it's when he comes in the clouds of heaven, it's with power and great glory, all the holy angels are with him, And it's at the resurrection of the just. That is when the rapture occurs. We looked at these passages. They all relate. They all support. Or these are the points that we drew out of just the passages we looked at. And how will it be? Well, it's with a shout. His voice will be heard. They that are in the graves will hear his voice. It's with the voice of the archangel. It's with the great sound of a trumpet. It's with power and great glory coming in the clouds, the armies which were in heaven following him. And all the holy angels with him. Now let's ask ourselves a question. Will it be a secret rapture where people will wonder what happened or where they went? I don't think so. Not based on these passages. The trumpet, when the trumpet sounds, we read that description there in the Exodus, what the Lord's trumpet sounds like. And in my study for this, I did read the commentaries. I didn't uh, put any of that down here. Uh, It's rather lengthy. But multiple commentaries also mention this connection with the trumpet on Mount Sinai as being a representation of what we can expect at the last trump. 
Thessalonians called it the trumpet of God or the trump of God. In Corinthians, it called it the last trump. And many of the commentators made the connection between the two. So this is not original with me at all. But they are some unique passages in Scripture. Now we might ask the question, so where did this concept come from that the rapture might be secret? Or people wondering what happened? Well, there's only, I can only think of one other passage that seems to speak of the, um, of the rapture and, and the connection is made. I think it's right. They look at the passage in Matthew where Jesus said that uh, in the end there, there will be two men um, in a bed and one will be taken and the other left. And two women will be grinding at the mill and one shall be taken and the other left and I think there's a third example of two people. One is taken and the other is left. And so in that passage, there is no mention of a trumpet. There's no mention of angels. There's no mention of a number of other points. And if you would take that passage in isolation, you know, no mention of a trumpet, no mention of some of these other things, you might think that maybe it's talking about a different time or something a little different. I don't think it's speaking of something different. I believe it's probably the same event. But the fact that it omits mentioning the trumpet and the armies in heaven, the angels, and all of those other things does not mean that it may not actually be a part of that passage there in Matthew. Now let's go back to our text. Beginning reading there in verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that, don't we? Yes, it tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15, that he was the first fruits of them that slept. And his resurrection is evidence that, that his saints will also rise again. Even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So God is going to bring all these souls with him. And we didn't we only looked at a few of the passages, but there are multiple ones that talk about the angels and all the saints coming with him and the armies which are in heaven following after him. And there's going to be an enormous company. 
God will bring them with him when Jesus comes. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, the we, Paul is identifying himself and his brethren. It's speaking about the righteous. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. He's going to come back the second time. He told us that many, many times. He's coming back. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or we shall not precede. We won't go ahead of those who are asleep. Those who are asleep in the grave. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. He went up into heaven, and we now look for him to appear again from heaven. He is going to, it says, the heavens must receive until the time of the restitution of all things. So he's going to come in the clouds of heaven. Jesus told that to the Sanhedrin when he was on trial. He said, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. In Revelation it says that, behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. So, this is taking place at his coming. And he's going to descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Three things, his voice, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. And we noted in, in Exodus that the trumpet sounded long, it sounded exceeding loud, and it got louder and louder. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. That will be the resurrection of the righteous. They will come up out of their graves and be joined to their souls. Body and soul will be joined together, I believe. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. We will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Amazing, tremendous. And this was just a small portion of that whole subject. But it was enough to help us see that some of the popular conception of what takes place at the, at the rapture is not that accurate. And we have the tools. We can look. We can study. We can pair scripture with scripture. And we consider the different aspects. And we come to an understanding. So I'd like to encourage you to study the scriptures and don't be intimidated by the theologians. They may know more than you do, but God is no respecter of persons and he will enable you to understand the scriptures just as well as anyone else. Now it may take some time, it may take some diligent study. There's a lot of diligence needs to go into study. 
Don't be um, puffed up after a short study and you seize on something and wow, this is a tremendous revelation to your heart. Chances are someone else has already seen that, someone who went before you. But it's, it's good for you. You need to dig and you need to get a hold of these things yourself. You need to be like that householder that brings forth out of his treasure house things new and old. Things you know well and things you are learning new. Don't be afraid to benefit from other men's studies, reading some commentaries with, uh, with the proper carefulness, but it can help you to grasp something that you may have missed otherwise. But don't be intimidated and think that it's beyond your reach because diligence will enable you by the power and spirit of God as you apply yourself you can lay hold of these things. And it is a tremendous way to um, inspire your heart when you're in your devotions. You know, I was thinking, I was so blessed with the preaching last night. You know how Brother Joe asked the question, Is your God able? And then he began to quote scriptures where just the word able and God is able. And he went over scripture after scripture. And that can be found with a very simple search of the word able. And it brings up a list. In many cases, probably where that word is used may not apply to your study, but Joe found a whole handful of able. God is able. He is able to keep you from falling. And all of those verses, I was inspired. Now that preaches well. Let me tell you something else. It devotions well, too. It's not just for the preachers out there, it's for you to lay hold and inspire your heart as you dig and search and find those treasures uh, like, like the gold that David talked about and food, more than my necessary food, the treasures that are to be found in God's word. And hopefully you may be profited by a few of these tools that you can use to lay hold of those exceeding great and precious promises. Okay. I think that's the conclusion. Is the moderator here? Or do we just dismiss?